If you're joining us for the first time today, we are continuing with a series uh, called Together, looking at community and what that looks like in 2020 and right here at Walla Walla University. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at what a united community and what a new community looks like. We've been in the book of Acts. Uh, today, we're going to be in the book of um, actually not Corinthians, where the scripture reading was from, but in the book of John. We will be looking at the gospel, the effects of the gospel, as we consider what um, a missional community might look like and also where mission actually originates from. I invite you to bow your heads as we pray. Gracious Father, we ask that your spirit, which has been here, will continue to abide We pray that each of us will hear a word from heaven, a word of comfort and a word of challenge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before I begin, um, thank you all for playing. You did a phenomenal job. I want to give a special thank you to the one who played on crutches. Remind me your name again? Gabby. Phenomenal. You know, when I was 12, I took piano lessons like a third of them who took piano lessons when they were 12, then quit. And I looked for every excuse to not play. If I'd had crutch, there was no way I'd have been playing. And yet here you are on crutches, making beautiful music for us. So thank you. We appreciate it. And all the other kids who were here as well, you did a fantastic job. I didn't realize that little humans could make music that early. Who realized that for the first time today? I just did. They sounded fantastic, and we are so grateful. For their, for their conductor who had to work with them, for parents who had to drive them and take them to classes, it pays off, and we're already hearing it, so thank you. We really, really appreciate it. So 2012, which for me feels like the other day, and yet for some people could have actually been half your life, uh, was an interesting year. And in 2012, the first video to hit 100 million views was the documentary Coney 2012. Who remembers Coney 2012? Okay, a few of you. So Coney 2012 featured Jason Russell, who was the main narrator and the main uh, person featured in this documentary, and they had a crystal clear purpose for releasing Coney 2012. They wanted to make Ugandan cult and militia leader indicted war criminal and fugitive Joseph Kony globally known in order to have him arrested by the end of 2012. They had a huge campaign. Everybody was involved. I remember hearing about Kony 2012. And yet by the end of the year, Joseph Kony was still a fugitive and not in prison. And Jason, Will- Jason Russell was actually arrested himself following a painful and humiliating public breakdown, which he said was a result of dehydration and exhaustion. And following his release, Jason Russell disappeared from public life for a few months because of embarrassment. And we all know that after enduring trauma, or pain, or embarrassment, 
We want to hide in the shadows. We want to cling to the walls. We just don't want to be seen. If you have ever suffered a breakup, and that breakup meant having to go through and excavate your timeline on Instagram or on Facebook, and you just decide, you know what? I'm just going to take a moment to just bow out from being on social media for a while because the embarrassment is strong. You know what Jason Russell felt. If you have gone through an embarrassing time, maybe even here on this campus, and then you have felt the need to all of a sudden go to the calf wearing sunglasses all the time, so you don't need to make eye contact with people. You have felt that shame. You have felt that embarrassment. If you have ever been in a stage in your life where you are screening your calls because you don't know who is on the other end, and if it's out of state, or maybe if it's even out of Walla Walla, you are not picking up that call. You know what it means to live a low-key life after embarrassment, after trauma, after something that hurts you. And in those moments, my friends, the last thing you ever want to do is face a flannix of inquisitors to go back in front of the spotlight, to have the camera put in your face, and to have someone ask you a question. And yet, this morning, in John chapter 20, Jesus, in a post-resurrection interaction, appears before his disciples on a Sunday evening and does precisely that. We all know that being a follower of Jesus is dangerous. It's uncertain. Being a follower of Jesus means there's going to be disruption in your life, and you can never truly plan everything you're going to do if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And yet, I imagine the scene of these disciples post-resurrection, having gone through losing the Savior, running from the Savior, and now the Savior appearing, that when Jesus comes into this room that the disciples are in, I can imagine that the room that they were huddled in was in fact a motel room, because they knew all of their homes were under surveillance from temple security and also from the uh, guards from the government. Their phones were on silent. They had blackout curtains drawn all across the windows. The door was double locked, dead bolted, and the do not disturb sign was on the handle. I imagine that these disciples, harried, frightened, are sitting and haven't left the room, nursing the free crackers that was left in the motel room, sipping water and sharing it because no one dares go outside in case someone sees them, takes a picture, and people know where they are. Until one of them eventually says, man, I'm hungry. There is no way I can be here for another 24 hours without eating. I need to eat. So someone's like, okay, cool. Let's do Uber Eats, and they're like, cool. So they get on their phone, they get Uber Eats, they get tacos, but they don't have it delivered at the motel room. They have it delivered a block away. Then they find a kid and they say, listen, pal, if you get us the food, we'll give you the tip. And so he gets the food, and they said, when you come back, take a different route than the one you went, okay? And so he takes a different route, brings them the food from Uber Eats, and then they kill it. But these are... These are the disciples, hold up, petrified. 
traumatized, debilitated, emotionally brittle, unsure of the future. And then John tells us in the biggest understatement that Jesus suddenly appears. The door is locked, and so Jesus appearing means Jesus went through the locked door. But John just gives us one sentence. Jesus appears. John chapter 20, he puts it this way, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. What an understatement. And so here is Jesus coming in. And at this very moment, even as I think about the rest of the sermon, I recognize there are some people who are here today who this is the only, night, the only line of the sermon you're going to care about. To know that Jesus comes when your knees are knocking, your heart is racing, your mind is worrying, and you have so many worries you can barely get a good night's sleep. When you cannot face the people on the outside, and so you close yourself on the inside, that Jesus Christ comes into the places where you have locked and shut down, where you have cut off your emotional abilities to feel, and Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. Somebody needs to know that regardless of what you think is going to happen on Monday, or what you are fearful of, for March, that Jesus Christ is here, he's present in your life, and he is saying, peace be with you. I am with you. And in this short pericope, Jesus says peace twice. He says, peace be with you. Then he says, peace again. And then after what we're going to look at, he says, peace again to Thomas. Peace to the doubting. Peace to the fearful. Peace to the to those who don't know what's going to happen. Jesus brings peace. And then Jesus moves from this beautiful moment of emotional attunement with the disciples, and in the blink of an eye, moves from reciprocity of, I feel you, I know what's going on. Jesus moves to asking a frankly outrageous and almost insensitive question to these scared disciples. You don't believe me? Read it. John 20, 21. Listen to what Jesus says to the disciples. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is after he has said peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And I know that if I was in that room, I would have been wanting to throw uh, either a flagrant flag onto the, onto the field or calling for a timeout. What do you mean, Jesus, as the Father has sent me, you are sending us? How does this make any sense? Jesus, don't you see their sunken, sleep-deprived eyes when you miraculously appeared? Don't you see how skittish they are because they are unsure of what's going to happen? Don't you see how scared they are because their, emotion, their um, reputations are in tatters? When you walked into the room, Jesus, didn't you see the seat in the corner where fear was sitting with his legs crossed and with a wry smile on his face, curled up 
at the corner of his lips. Didn't you see fear had roped around all of the disciples and they were bound and unable to leave, that they had locked themselves in from the inside so they couldn't go outside. Now you're saying, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. How? Jesus, how? You're basically saying, go get them, boys. (laughs) And so why is Jesus in this penultimate, private, post-resurrection appearance telling his disciples and summoning them to mission? Why can't he cut them some slack at this point of their life? And what you notice is that in this passage, Jesus has dual concerns. The first concern that Jesus has for these disciples is comfort. And then he has also a concern for mission. Because he comes and he says, peace be with you. He's not a brute. He's not insensitive. He knows that life is difficult. He knows what's going on. And so he says, peace be with you. I am with you. So he brings comfort He brings comfort, but Jesus doesn't just leave the disciples with comfort. He doesn't just leave them feeling comfortable. Jesus Christ does something else, and in this moment, we see the deepest desire of Jesus for you and for me, that his redeemed followers would unlock their doors and open their hearts to a world disconnected and cast adrift from him. Mission, not just comfort, but mission. Jesus knows that things can be tough. Jesus knows that things are not easy, so he brings comfort. But he also clarifies that there is a mission, and it means that you have to unlock doors. Throughout Scripture, we find that God is a sender. God the Father sends the Son Then together, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And in unity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit send the church into the world. That's the movement. To be a missional community, to be followers of Jesus, means we enter automatically into this stream of God's divine movement. And so when a church gathered together comes, we are coming not because we need to manufacture our own mission, but, be, but because we need to partner with God's already ongoing mission. And this is the sentness of being a Christian. One thing that brings relief for me, maybe it won't for you, but if you grew up in the church, perhaps this will bring relief for you, is recognizing that this model of being missional, this way of reaching out, is different than the way many of us grew up hearing. We wouldn't have heard this as the text, but we would have felt it as the subtext. And the subtext would have been this. You essentially need to be the Power Rangers, Avengers, or the PJ Masks of the world. Because the world has got some crazy megalomanic bad guy running around 
and you need to go and defeat that person. Thanos is on the loose, and it's a cosmic conflict, and only you, your four friends from Bible study, and your sister's dog can save the world. And if you don't do it, then we're all in trouble. And so with this idea of there is, God is not working, God needs us, and if we don't do it, nothing's going to happen, it puts a burden on us and makes mission centered on us. But it's never centered on us. The initiative for mission lies in God. Listen to what John says in John 15 verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Let's sit with this verse for one moment because it may disturb you as much as it disturbed me. Who's excluded from this text? Jesus says, you did not choose me, and this is for those who call themselves followers of Jesus, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus doesn't say, but if your Enneagram number is four, if your Myers-Briggs type says that you can't do it, you get a pass. Jesus doesn't say, well, you might be too young, you might be too old, you might be the wrong gender, so you can't be part of this. No, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And when I chose you, I didn't just choose you and comfort and coddle, but I appointed you for what? For mission to go and to bear fruit. And so when we think about being Christians, when we think about being a community of followers of Jesus, if we are following Jesus, then it means we have to reckon with the sharp edge of this verse that we have been chosen, that we have been appointed, and that we have to go. The impetus for this comes from Christ. And yet, I think for many of us, there are going to be things that make us feel uncomfortable when we think about mission. You know, we have a tortured history as a, as a denomination with mission. When you look at what happened in the 50s and the turn which we took, we have got to the stage in some places where being missional or having mission works overseas for those people in the majority world, but we cannot figure it out here unless it's the talking head and the flyers and nobody is really that interested anymore in that. And so some of you may be thinking, okay, yeah, 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 mission, whatever. So what are you saying? I need to be like, what do you want me to do? And then there's others who are thinking, I, even before you ask me about the praxis, what you want me to do, I'm not sure I'm even with you about mission because the world is too evil. And then there's others who think, well, can I really do much because the world is so good? What do we really need to do? 
And so we have two competing things that make us resistant to even accepting this rubric of mission. And the first, let me think about that. The world has got too much evil. So perhaps we see too much evil in the world. You turn on the news and you find it replete with examples of horrific human evil. We mourn natural disasters. We decry societal decay. We are apoplectic at moral lasciviousness. And so we tap out and we say, I'm good. I'm moving out into the middle of nowhere, getting box seats and watching all of it rot. Can't be involved. It's too dangerous for me and my family. I'm tapping out, getting as far away from this as possible. Too much evil in the world. And so we curtail the missional impact that Christ calls us to have as he has adopted us and he has charged us and he has sent us. But on the other hand, there are people who say, yeah, no, this is, this is like way too much. The, the world is really not that bad. The world, isn't, the world is getting better. I mean, I know we we think is getting worse, but empirically, the data says the world is getting better, like Harvard professor Steven Pinker. The better angels of our nature are winning. There's less violence. There's better education for children. We're living in a time where life expectancy has gone up, where infectious diseases are being driven down where artificial intelligence has given us the opportunity to harness the power of the human mind for good. And so to have a mission and to look at this world as just being terrible, no, it isn't. I mean, this isn't 15th century feudalism. That would have been bad, but we're getting better. And so for some people, the subtext that may stop a missional life is seeing that the world is actually good and getting better. And then some may even take it a step further, where they start to view moral absolutism like a social faux pas and any kind of proselytism as just being uncouth and uncalled for. Like, we don't need to tell other people about Jesus if they're generally good. What's the point? You know, good humanists, why bother? And so Jesus' missional summons means little. All we do need to do is to seek the common good, eat local, sustainable food, and we're good. And so I would say, is the world getting better or is the world getting worse? Yes. There's extraordinary process that has come as a consequence of modernity. Pinker is right, and yet the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists on January the 23rd of this year moved the doomsday clock to 100 seconds until midnight. And this secular summary of Earth's viability says this, humanity continues to face two simultaneous existential dangers, nuclear war and climate change, that are compounded by a threat multiplier, cyber-enabled information warfare that undercuts society's ability to respond. So now what? So you're telling me Jesus calls us to go? Some of us don't want to go because we think the world is too bad. We need to just run from it. Some of us think the world is too good. 
We don't really need to do much. Tell them about Jesus. And these guys are saying, wait, we're 100 seconds from midnight. What is going on? What do you want us to do? Well, when you leave, no, I was going to, what I'm not going to say is there's placards for every single one of you when you leave. There's bullhorns for you when you leave. There's wearable sandwich boards, and we're going to pile into buses lined up right here in front of the church, go downtown to Walla Walla, go and stand on sandwich boxes, and we're going to decry the sins of the valley like Jonah or like Elisha. We're just going to decry it every single day. We're not go- that's what we're going to do. No, that's not the move because there wouldn't be enough bullhorns because all of the intro extroverted, talkative ones would have taken them. The introverts would have thrown them down, then ran home and got on their computer and just started typing furious emails and writing terrible reviews on our Facebook book that this new pastor you bought is insane. Why is he here? (laughs) So no, we're not going to go and do that because that's insane. And yet, if we're going to live as a missional community, move to partner in the work of the Father that the Son and Spirit are already doing, we have to be moved by the beauty and the force of the gospel. The gospel has to come alive. It has to be true. It has to be attractive for us. On Thursday, I received a phone call from a friend of mine and I missed it, and he didn't text me. So I'm thinking, why is he not text me? Right? You, you have phones, right? You've got phones. No, some of you. I see. The ones who don't have it look like they want it. The ones who, <laughs> who do have it are wondering if I'm about to dish you for having phones. No, I'm not. If you have a phone, I have a phone. Friend calls me. I miss the call. He doesn't text me. So I'm thinking, what's going on? I call him back a couple of hours later. I'm like, hey, mate, what's going on? And there's a pause. You know when there's a pause, you just don't know what's going to come, like, right? So there's a pause. And then, um, and then he turns, and then he says to me, hey, um, on Tuesday, I paid um, $27,000 worth of debt, and now I'm debt-free. I'm like, wait, what? You paid how much? $27,000. He came into a financial windfall. And as soon as that money hit his account, literally, like the second it hit his account, my friend is on the phone, ring, ring, student loan company. He's like, hello? I want to pay off $9,000 and pay off all my student loans. They're like, the full balancer, he's like, yes, puts the phone down, picks it up, calls another person. It's his credit cards. You knew it was going to be his credit cards. <laughs> Hello? Pays off $5,000 of his credit card. Calls his bank, pays off his overdraft. Calls his car, pays off the car loan. And now he is walking around for the first time in his adult life, debt-free. And so when he tells me this, 
you know, I sort of feel like um, I'm now Dave Ramsey on the end of the call, you know, the I'm debt free, right? You must have heard that. People going wild because they paid off exorbitant amounts of debt. This is what he's like. He's over the moon. He goes, listen, now when I go to a coffee shop and I'm talking to the barista, I'm not just trying to get what I need and then bounce. I'm having a conversation with them because I'm debt free and I tell them. When I'm in an Uber, I don't just put my earpods in and ignore the driver, hope I don't get kidnapped and get to my destination. Now I talk to the driver and I tell them what's going on, that I'm debt free. And then he goes on. When I am talking to my friends, when I'm talking to my family, everyone knows this cataclysmic event which has changed the trajectory of my life forever. It leaks out of him. Good news changes our behavior. It leaks out of us. It's not coerced. It's not forced. It's not guilted. But if the good news is greater than our comfort, it leaks. And when I think about my friend and the fact that he had an incredible benefactor who stepped into his life and who paid a debt for him that he was looking at taking another 15, maybe 20 years to pay off himself, I immediately think about Jesus' call to the disciples. I think about Corinthians and the preaching of the gospel being foolishness. I think about us who are here this afternoon in this congregation, and I think no one needs to be guilted by the talking mouth to be more missional, to reach out to people. No. What needs to happen is the gospel needs to be articulated and experienced so fresh in your life. Jesus needs to be so resplendent in your life that you leak. So you're like, my friend, when you sit with people, you leak, you tell them that Jesus Christ has not only helped you to not be like the disciples in a locked room, that he has unlocked your mouth so that you can speak if you feel like I can't do it. No, the Holy Spirit does it. If you think, well, you know, it's just for the preachers. Come on, that's why we're paying you. Stop trying to get out of your job. Like, nope, you have a pulpit too. Let me explain and describe what your pulpit looks like. Your pulpit is probably like maybe from here to here. It's almost as big as this. It's got four legs. It's got chairs around it. And when you bring people to it, you don't preach to them. You eat with them. Your pulpit, it's got wheels, four wheels. You drive it. And everywhere you go, you have people that you're going to meet. And if you have found Jesus, my friends, to be attractive and enough, if you have found the the gospel and the risen Lord to be life-changing, you will talk about it. Regardless of your Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs, you'll do it in the way that makes sense for you. 
And people would leave knowing that there is something different. Acts chapter 2, the first sermon we started off with in this series, we saw that the church grew, and after Peter's huge evangelistic tent meeting, the church grew because people were united and they were loving each other, and that was the evangelistic impetus, the strength of their community. And so this morning, or this afternoon, as I think about what it looks like for us to be a missional community, I think a few things. I think, number one, you don't need to be a superhero because it's God's mission, not yours. And God is just inviting you to partner with what he is already doing. The second thing, which is important, is to know that you don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to be like, well, do I know how to give Bible studies? All you need to do is to have a burning love for Christ, and it will leak, and people will be attracted to the changed person that you have been because of Jesus. I think about what Timothy says of this good news of the gospel in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And let me tell you why this is so incredible, because every time my friend shared that he had um, just paid off $27,000, people could be happy for him. I saw people smiling here, people thinking, wow, why couldn't that have been me? (laughs) $27,000 would sure coming nice right about now. But when he shared with other people, they could have been happy for him, but they were not as happy as him because they were still in debt. But here's the difference. When we come and we receive the good news of the gospel and we share that news with others, they don't need to just be happy for us. They can be as happy as us because it's not a diminishing product. Your salvation does not affect other people's. Your joy and your abundance and your peace does not affect the amount other people can have. And in fact, as stewards of this gospel, we have the opportunity, my friends, to live lives that are so attractive, to live lives that are so joyous that other people might come into a knowledge and experience of this truth. And so I pray that in this valley, we will have people so in love, so dedicated to the risen Christ, to the truth and the freedom of the gospel, that as we sit around our tables, as we take our kids to the playgrounds and the parks, as we do Pilates and we go to CrossFit, as we walk around campus, we are able to embody the mission and the sentness that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always engaged in out of their love for us. This is a wonderful, wonderful privilege that we have. And I pray that in the week to come, God will give you glimpses and reminders and refreshers 
of how beautiful and how deep the gospel is.